you put money into a series of foreign trusts and you make it harder for the government to find the money because it's not just in trust X that you can find, but it's in a series of trusts around the world. As the head of the strike force at the time told me, hey, you're the only guy that has any accounting background. Look at this tax case and, and see what you think of it. You're listening to Richard Zuckerman, the former assistant attorney general with the United States Department of Justice Tax Division. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The resumes of the people I see that apply to the tax division and the Department of Justice as a whole are just remarkable resumes. In this episode, we discuss the importance of the Department of Justice Tax Division in criminal and civil tax matters, international tax evasion schemes, how an accounting course started his career to becoming Assistant Attorney General and the battle of attrition that the IRS is facing. He is a former acting Assistant Attorney General at DOJ Tax Division. He is currently the partner for Heineken Law Firm in Detroit, Michigan. Richard Zuckerman, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks very much, Bob, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast. What compelled you to become a lawyer? The truthful answer will sound kind of flippant, which is I didn't know what else to do. I had I was in the service after I graduated from the University of Michigan. I served four years as an officer in the Navy. And, and when my four years was about to be concluded, I looked around and what was I going to do? And, and I kind of decided that the only thing that was suitable to my interests at the time was to try to go to law school and become a lawyer. Although I, I wasn't exactly sure uh, what area I would go into or um, how I would even react to being a student at a law school. It was kind of a, a series of circumstances that led me to a point where I had to make a career decision to stay in the Navy, which I didn't want to do and my wife didn't want me to do, or to to find something else to do. And, and the practice of law seemed to be the, the one area that was suitable to my background at the time. After law school, throughout your career, you were in the tax arena. Would that be correct? In actuality, I have always been characterized as a white-collar criminal defense lawyer with a significant subspecialty in civil and criminal tax litigation. I took accounting while I was in the service. Uh, I enrolled in the MBA program at San Diego State. Not that I knew I'd finish it because I wasn't going to be in San Diego uh, for a long period of time, but I wanted to take accounting because I thought that would help me somewhere along the line. And through a circumstance, uh, because I had accounting, one of the first significant matters I had was a tax matter that arose uh, after I got hired by the Department of Justice Organized Crime Section out of law school. This matter was pending in the office that I was assigned. And as the head of the strike force at the time told me, hey, you're the only guy that has any accounting background. Look at this tax case and, and see what you think of it. So 
it was that circumstance of having taken tax courses that led me to be assigned to a significant tax evasion case. And so I developed an interest in tax evasion and tax litigation through that case. And it kind of expanded along the way during uh, my years as a trial lawyer with the organized crime section of the Department of Justice through my uh, private practice career. Later on in your career, actually about a couple of years ago, you were uh, you became the Acting Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Justice Tax Division. How does someone become the guy operating tax division? I mean, would do you post your resume on Indeed.com or Monster.com? How does this? How do you get the job? How does it work? In the first instance, you have to have experience in the area that you're expressing an interest in. So I had over time, not because I was looking for that job in particular. But I had, as I said, I took accounting through the MBA program at San Diego State. When I was prosecuting organized crime figures in Detroit, which was my first assignment by the Department of Justice, I enrolled in and took courses for an LLM in tax at Wayne State University. But I didn't write a thesis, so I did not get the actual LLM degree. And then over time, over my almost 40 years experience in civil or private practice, I handled a significant number of civil and criminal tax matters, in addition to what I would call normal white collar criminal defense matters. And so you, you built a resume. Then, because the position to which I was appointed is a political appointment, I had over time become I wouldn't say overly active, but reasonably active in political matters, not as a candidate, but as either a consultant or uh, a fundraiser or things of that nature. And through that, I got to know a variety of people. And then I'd always wanted to go back to the Department of Justice in some capacity. The next thing that had to happen is is a political party that you've been supporting obtains the uh, the presidency. And through the people you know, uh, you let them know you're interested in a position. And then um, you either get a call to come in for an interview or you don't. So I had submitted a resume to two different people who I, I got to know over the years that were active in, in politics. And they had gotten to know me personally and professionally. And I submitted a resume. And then one day in March of 2017, I got a call to come in for an interview. Flew to D.C., was interviewed in April. The vetting process is fairly significant because not only do they have to know about your substantive background, but you have to have a significant security clearance as well. And so I interviewed in uh, April and I got called for a second interview in June and I got a tentative offer in October. But basically it's a, it's a combination of the experience, the recognition by others that you have the experience, and then for better or worse, getting to know the people who are either the decision makers or are one step away from the decision makers. That's generally how all political appointments are made. I would say there's a more of an emphasis on experience, but you do have to be able to pick up a phone and call someone and say, I'd like to send you my resume. Why is the Department of Justice Tax Division important? Why is it there? It was formed in 19, I think, 33, because at the time, prior to 1933, when the division was formed, it's either 33 or 34, I can't remember exactly when, tax collection was 
spread around various different areas of the federal government. But by the time the division was formed, the IRS code had been in place. It had become complicated. The need for revenue had become you know, significant. And the Congress and the president decided at the time decided that the Department of Justice should have within it a division that would be responsible for civil and criminal enforcement of the IRS code and to do that on a national basis, meaning that the tax division and the antitrust division are the the two divisions within the Department of Justice that have nationwide authority. But the idea was to have fair and equal, consistent treatment when it comes to the enforcement of the tax laws throughout the country. So rather than have tax policy set by every individual United States attorney that was centralized within the Department of Justice Tax Division so that people would would feel that everybody is being treated equally and fairly through a centralized system where you had the tax division as the authority and the, the, uh, the, the group that was responsible for the enforcement of the tax laws. So what type of cases does DOJ tax litigate? Well, on the criminal side, we obviously handle criminal cases and all of the appeals from criminal cases. But that's really kind of broken into thirds. The IRS is responsible for conducting the criminal investigations. The tax division does not have investigators. So the tax division will receive from the Internal Revenue Service, a referral of a matter that the Internal Revenue Service believes should be pursued criminally. Now, that referral can come in directly to the Department of Justice, which would handle the matter itself. It may also go through a uh, a delegation of authority from the tax division to the United States Attorney's offices directly. So they may develop a case but the authority to prosecute comes from the tax division. So, and then there are some cases where the tax division works with a United States attorney's office. So you have three different ways a tax division can boil up from the IRS, direct to the U.S. attorney's office, direct to the tax division, or a hybrid between the two. But ultimately, when it comes to the authority to prosecute, the authority to prosecute has to come from the tax division. And the tax division is on the criminal side, three different geographic sections. Whatever section has a geographical cognizance over a particular U.S. attorney's office, that section is responsible for reviewing a request to prosecute and authorizing it or not. On the civil side, it's a little different. The IRS civilly handles through their Council handles matters in the U.S. tax court where the huge bulk of civil tax controversies are litigated. And they're litigated there because it's an easier court to get into when it comes to the payment of a filing fee, uh, although you don't get a jury trial. So if the IRS, through its attorneys, will litigate with a taxpayer in tax court, and if either side decides to appeal, then the appeal is handled by the tax division. The other civil section that handles litigation is the Court of Federal Claims, and they generally handle suits where taxpayers are seeking refunds. And the, the suits for refunds can also come from the um, U.S. district courts. But all of that litigation 
is handled by the civil side of the House, and the civil side has its own appellate section as well. Just to be a little clearer, if you're a taxpayer and you don't like the IRS's claim that you owe more money, and if you just want to pay a filing fee and litigate with the IRS, then you go to the tax court. If you want a jury trial, because there are no jury trials in tax court, then you would go to the United States District Court. But in order to go to the United States District Court or to go to the Court of Claims, and you have to pay all your tax penalty and interest in full and sue for a refund. That's usually economically prohibitive for the individual taxpayer. Those are the three civil forums that, were, that are under the cognizance of the tax division. And that's how the tax division litigates. My expertise was in the criminal tax arena. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is without the IRS referring a case to DOJ tax for some type of criminal tax violation, DOJ tax does not have an investigators, cannot just willy-nilly say, we want to prosecute this case, go do it. You have to get all the evidence from the IRS first, review it, approve it. Then once it's approved, then the U.S. Attorney's Office or your office can can prosecute it. That's 99% correct. Because of a statute, which is referred to as 6103, it's essentially a taxpayer privacy statute. The tax division doesn't know about the existence of a case being investigated criminally until it's referred by the IRS to the tax division for prosecution. There, there is a way, however, to get interim legal advice, but that's only for a short period of time, and then the case goes back to the IRS and we don't see it again until it's referred. There are circumstances, particularly in what I'll refer to as the Swiss bank cases, which we might get into a little later, where during the course of a Swiss bank investigation or a foreign bank investigation, the tax division in reviewing um, all of the information obtained either voluntarily through subpoena or through what are called MLATs may see something that the tax division believes should be investigated. So the tax division would then put together a little package and send what's called an invite letter to the relevant office of the IRS and the CID group within that office inviting the IRS to take a look at a particular matter. So in that case, the tax division can stimulate a criminal investigation, but it can't conduct it because the IRS needs to open a case and pursue it. Regarding tax evasion, how does DOJ tax help the IRS in tax collection? How does that work? The DOJ helps the IRS because it is the DOJ that has the exclusive ability to go to the federal district courts and on the criminal side, prosecute, and through the prosecution, develop the basis for a civil assessment. And after which, if the IRS, through its collection people, are unsuccessful, then the litigation of the collection would be handled by our civil litigation sections, which are also, by the way, geographically constituted. And in a lot of instances, the IRS will pursue collection remedies through their, their revenue officers. They will be unsuccessful, and the statutes may be on the uh, cusp of expiring, in which case they'll come over to civil collection and ask that the civil side institute a lawsuit to reduce the assessment to judgment, which would give additional time for collection and then would also, because the civil people are involved, would enhance the ability to collect the money through 
the uh, you know the civil enforcement mechanisms that exist. We actually have or used to have a financial litigation unit called the FLU. Everything in the government is an acronym. And the financial litigation unit would be the smaller unit within one of the sections that would be responsible for attempting to collect on assessments that have been reduced to judgment. We work hand in hand. The IRS may do the, the work to get things going and to generate the, the assessments through the IRS civil processes. But then in order to actually collect money, sometimes you need to have litigation. And that's what the tax division, the civil side does. It's interesting. I was not aware of DOJ tax civil section actually trying to collect money. I had a case where an individual had a criminal judgment against them, tax judgment, right? And right. then there was a statute. I mean, my understanding is there's a statute of limitations. So it was years and decades ago. Uh, this has been on the books. And somehow the civil division was getting something done at judgment again for 20 years. And they were actually trying to interview the taxpayer to determine their assets to collect on a multi-million dollar judgment. And even went through a deposition. And I got a copy of the deposition where the guy lied too. So I used that as is this considered an affirmative act of ta more tax evasion, evasion of payment when you lie to the DOJ tax civil division? I put it in there in, the, in my report, but I didn't even realize that that you guys were even out there civilly trying to collect that money. It was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's an immense amount of civil litigation. The civil litigation, the people on that side of the house, it's almost two to one. In other words, we have 340 lawyers. There's about 105 or 10 criminal lawyers and maybe 200 civil lawyers. There's much more civil litigation. And a lot of it is collection work, although it's highly sophisticated collection work. And a lot of this comes up. If you have a large company that wants to litigate 100 million plus potential liability in the tax court and they lose, we're going to be involved on the appellate side. When it gets to us, most of those cases will ultimately settle. There's a lot of civil settlements. And then there's a lot of just straight out collection work. Regarding international tax evasion, let's talk about from a criminal standpoint. What kind of schemes are out there that you see at DOJ tax? From the simple to the very complex. The simplest is an American taxpayer opens a, an account in a foreign bank and the American taxpayer earns money that is taxable in the United States, whether that's earned in the United States or elsewhere, and simply doesn't report it and runs the income through the Swiss bank account and leaves it there. So you just have the simplest situation where money goes into an account and it's simply not reported. Then there are people who have put money into Swiss accounts with their after-tax dollars, but have generated income from that previously taxed money through investing overseas, because on the theory that it would be harder for the government to find that you're investing overseas. And so the income from those investments are not reported. You can have a situation where the banks are supposed to report to the United States persons they believe to be U.S. citizens who have foreign bank accounts. And those citizens decide that they don't want to stay at Bank X because Bank X is going to tell the U.S. government that they have an account there. So they take their money 
and they don't put it in another bank account. They put it into an insurance policy. And the insurance policy is administered by a foreign company. And the they are not named as the holder of that account, but they are able to direct the amount of the money in that account, even though it's an insurance policy. It's something like you buy a million dollars worth of insurance, but you put up a million dollars. And then you can invest that money any way you want and you can earn the income from it. But because it's it's hidden within an insurance policy, it makes it harder for the government to ultimately find it. And then you have people that it's kind of a variation of the first instance where you just put money into a foreign trust. You put money into a series of foreign trusts and you make it harder for the government to find the money because it's not just in trust X that you can find, but it's in a series of trusts around the world. Uh, and the trusts are controlled by foreign entities, which make it look like a foreign entity owns the money. But it really is American money because of the way the trusts that control these foreign accounts operate. So you get a whole series of latter complicated schemes to avoid taxation. And I'm sure there's other things out there that are even more complicated. But those are the general things that the tax division has seen over the years. I saw one case where it was the latter that you talked about, mm -hmm. where it was an international, in my opinion, tax scheme, four layers deep, all these shell companies. It was just amazing how foreign corporations owned by this foreign corporation has to be in Panama, who's owned by which is owned by a British Virgin Island Corporation, which is owned by this, which is owned by a another trust. It was just unbelievable trying to figure you know the layers that, that that went down just to hide what was going on. From sitting at DOJ Tax Division and being a uh, white collar lawyer. These multimillionaires, billionaires who use this type of scheme, they're not creating this stuff. They're not going to the bank account and doing this. Someone's selling them on this product or service. What does DOJ tax do with the people who facilitate this? Like the other attorneys, tax lawyers or return preparers, you know, they, I guess my point is these people who have all this money to try to hide have the resources to hire very smart people. But yet it seems that it's it's the smart people that are that are in the big law firms and big CPA firms, I guess, that are facilitating this process. What are, what are your thoughts about that? The complicated structures are not by themselves, generally not by themselves, illegal. Right. How they're used. Right. So the question is really not whether a particular lawyer or law firm sets up a structure, what kind of instructions or advice or counseling is that lawyer giving to the prospective client? And what is the level of sophistication of the prospective client? What the IRS has done and done successfully is the IRS, when it comes to believe that there are lawyers who are in the business of creating complicated structures for the purpose of avoiding taxation, the IRS investigates those lawyers and will prosecute them when they have sufficient information. And there are cases like that presently pending. The methodology to develop the cases is you might actually, if you find and are successful in prosecuting an individual who has evaded taxes, 
that individual to mitigate his sentence will likely cooperate against the accountant or the lawyer. In addition, if it's very persuasive, the IRS on occasion has, has posed as clients and has engaged these accountants or lawyers in conversations and recorded them in real time. And that is very strong evidence, assuming the accountant or lawyer says something that's inculpatory, but that's very strong evidence to show that the business is not just setting up the mechanism, the business is helping the client evade taxes. So the IRS is, is very active in this area. The IRS and the Department of Justice realize that it's equally important to prosecute the people that are facilitating, as well as the people who are using the devices themselves. What are some of the challenges do you foresee for DOJ tax for the next five years? Where's this going? What 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 are some of the obstacles they're gonna to have to they're gonna start seeing or have to overcome? The first obstacle that's been in existence for a number of years is the erosion of the number of IRS special agents. The number of IRS special agents over the last 10 years have may, maybe dropped by 50%. So the, the fewer special agents, the fewer the cases. There's been publicity about how the current administration wants to reinvigorate the IRS, but it's going to take a long time, even if every dollar that's spoken about is actually is actually legislated and given to the IRS, because the people that are leaving are the people, and they're they're retired. They're not just up and walking out by and large. So you have large groups of experienced agents leaving. So if you have 300 experienced agents leaving t- this year, and you hire 400 agents to replace them, that sounds good. But it, it's not as good as it sounds because you've lost expertise. 400 new agents are not the equivalent of 300 experienced agents who are retiring. So the first hurdle is you don't have enough agents to, to investigate the cases that ought to be investigated. From the DOJ side, the DOJ has, I think, an adequate number of lawyers based on the amount of cases that the IRS is referring. If the IRS refers more cases, the DOJ will need more lawyers. That's on the personnel side. There's always a problem with getting documentary evidence from foreign banks. And there's a worse problem in having witnesses that are employed by foreign banks testify for the government. So you have hurdles caused by the fact that The banks, the documents, and the witnesses are in foreign countries. Those are hurdles, but they're not insurmountable. What has happened is where the the IRS has been successful in obtaining information from certain foreign countries, the foreign countries changed the law to make it harder for the IRS and the Department of Justice to get the information. But even those hurdles are overcome, but there are a continuing series of hurdles with respect to dealing with foreign entities. Where the case can be documented in the United States, it's no harder than any other complicated white collar case, uh, with the exception that tax cases are usually 100% paper and a lot of paper. So you have to have not only the lawyers to review things, but you need to make certain that you have the right infrastructure, like you need to have up-to-date computer systems, you need to have the the best analytical software on the market, because you need to keep up-to-date with what the defense firms have when 
they're engaged to represent people that are under investigation. It's a budgetary issue when it comes to personnel and it comes to equipment. And there's there are issues with respect to obtaining documents and information and people to be witnesses when they're all employed by foreign banks. But the, the division in the IRS managed to put together some very significant cases in the last four or five years. So these are not insurmountable, but they're difficulties. I'm glad you said something uh, regarding the IRS budget. It's I'm one of those people that retired just recently after 20 years, and you were absolutely right. You could you could hire you could hire 400 to replace 300, but it takes. I don't care how smart you are as an investigator walking into the front door. It takes a couple of years just to learn the policy, procedures, what sales, what doesn't sell. <laughs> I mean, knowing what DOJ tax is going to look at, what the judge is going to want, what U.S. Turn, U.S. Turns Office is going to want, what your supervisor is going to want, how to get all that stuff together. And the average case takes at least 18 months. And if you're talking about an international case, you're talking about at least two or three years. Just because getting the records is, is difficult. It's even worse if you, if you want to talk timelines. So if you hypothesize that you're losing 300 experienced agents, and it can be a mix. It can be special agents. It can be revenue agents. And you're bringing on board 400 hires. It could take them 18 to 24 months just to be in the position to do the simplest case. Right. But the people that have left are the ones that are doing the most complicated cases. You have an experience gap. The 400 new agents to replace the 300 experienced agents that are departing, you might not see that expertise reinvigorated for five or six years. Yep, that's 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 so true. And it has nothing to do with the intelligence level of what you're what you're no. what you're hiring. It's just it's a different animal. It, you just no one wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm gonna be a special agent and do international tax crimes. It it, it takes a little while. Well, it, here, look, the one example is in the area of the auditing of American companies with foreign subsidiaries. That's a very complicated area. And there are ways which foreign companies can legitimately use the tax code to minimize their American tax exposure. And you hear this when you're talking about companies with intellectual property that transfer their, their intellectual property to a foreign subsidiary and the foreign subsidiary is the one that actually licenses the products around the world. Mm-hmm. So now that's all of that generally is under a particular statute or group of statutes within the IRS code. The IRS doesn't have a lot of agents, actual civil agents, revenue agents that can actually audit the complexities that are generated by transferring assets to a foreign subsidiary for purposes of minimizing taxes. And then there are limitations, however, on the amount of money that can be repatriated to the parent by the foreign subsidiary. That is a complicated audit situation. But there might be only a handful of agents that can do it. And the agents that can do it are agents that are 20, 25 years worth of experience. And I know because I dealt with these kind of cases that at least two of them retired while I was heading the division. Those two agents, it might take 10 years to replace them, substantively. It's a very difficult situation to uh, keep 
an expertise where you've let 10 years go by where people have left the IRS and have retired. And now the headcount is just being reinvigorated, but that has nothing to do with the expertise. It's an accurate statement of what's going on. Because when I read the papers, when I read the papers and look at, well, the IRS is going to get more money. And everybody's going, well, you got to be careful. IRS is going to get more money. Like, it's going to be years, years before it's even ramped up to where it's even a decent level. And honestly, <laughs> working for the government for for 20 years, you can put in a dollar, you'll get 40 cents worth because they're doing better at hiring better special agents, in my opinion. But there's a, there was a whole slew of times where the hiring process of a special agent, uh, if you're going to New York City and you got a, you got a, uh, an interview in, let's say, Dallas, Texas, you may pass the interview because oh, they didn't care. You're going to New York City. You're not going to be my problem. But now they've solved the problem. I think they got better where it's the SAC agreeing, I want you in my group. I want you in my field office. Because whatever he hires, he knows he's going to have to keep. It makes it a lot easier to find quality candidates because you don't get the people just pushed on. You know, so let me go back to the to the issue of reinvigorating the IRS when it comes to the personnel headcount. You have continuing retirements and departures from the IRS. That's never going to stop. Right. The question is whether the Congress and any administration will continually reinvigorate the IRS or, for example, after two years of letting the IRS hire more people to replace those that are leaving, uh, a political decision is made to not do that anymore. And then you're back where you started from. So it's not just this year you can hire more people. You have to have a, some understanding if the, if the collection of taxation is a priority, you have to have some understanding that there will be a continual plan to replace those who are departing. But if you stop for three or four years because of some political expediency, you're going to be right back where you are. Tell me about a case that you're most proud of or something that made a difference in your career. The story I tell is I I was hired out of law school to go into the organized crime division of the Justice Department, which I wanted to do. I spent four months in training in D.C. and Ashbourne was was assigned to Detroit because I went to Michigan. My wife's a third generation Michigander. We met at the University of Michigan and we decided uh, among the various places that we could go to after I got out of the service and out of law school, Detroit made the most sense. So we came back to Detroit, and that was January of 1975. So sometime in February, the head of the office comes to me, and I alluded to this earlier, and he says to me, uh, you have some accounting. And I said, yeah, and I've, I've been with the government now six months. He said, well, the IRS has this case, and they're banging on my door. The statute's going to expire. I don't understand it. And then he's in his own inimitable style. He says to me, you know, give him an hour's worth of your time and throw him the hell out. <laughs> I, said, oh. I, said, oh. I said, OK. So I sat down with the, the special agent, a great guy. He passed away a couple of years ago, a fabulous special agent. And he brought the revenue agent with him, another fabulous guy that and in those days, you always had on a case from start to finish a revenue agent and a special agent, always. 
they explain the case to me and I'm trying to get my head around it because it's a mixture of taxation and IRS criminal taxation, which is a little different. I said, well, that's a real case. So I go back to the boss and I said, it's a real case. So he then assigned a much more senior general criminal prosecutor because I had six months of experience and, and the other fellow had 20 years. And this was going to be a high, you know, like all tax cases, it's a mixture of criminal tax and general federal criminal procedure. We conduct grand jury ex- and we indict this fellow in uh, April, about three days before the oldest year expires, which is the statute issue I referred to. And it turns out he's a very well-known mafia figure in Detroit. Turns out he's the guy that set up the meeting from which Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. We indict him in April. Hoffa disappears in July. This case goes to trial in October. It's on every news channel in the country. And then from that, I get assigned to assist in the investigation into the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So that just a quirk. If I hadn't taken accounting. While I was in the service, I would have never, the boss wouldn't have come to me. I've been in the office six months. So that case is, was a seven month net worth case. And when I say seven months, I mean five days a week, nine to five. We didn't have a month off in between. I think that's the most interesting collection of cases that I was ever involved in. Although I was also in charge of the investigation into the uh, hidden ownership of a Las Vegas casino, which ultimately turned out to be a successful prosecution. And there were were a lot of tax issues with regard to that, too, primarily the underreporting of the skim, you know, money that was being taken out in cash from the casinos. But the entire experience with the strike force in Detroit was remarkable, if you want to put it that way, because it just happened to luck out and be at the right places at the right time. Very interesting. Very interesting. Because of accounting, uh, doors opened up for you. Yeah, I I took accounting because I thought it would be helpful somewhere. Uh, I didn't know where and I didn't know how. But if I had not taken accounting while I was in the service, like I said, the boss wouldn't have come to me. There'd be no reason to. Looking back on your career, both as a federal prosecutor as well as in private practice, what was your biggest mistake or lost opportunity? I can't think of any lost opportunity. I've been very lucky to be at the right place at the right time. When it comes to clients hiring me in private practice for matters that turned out to be very significant and and with a lot of publicity, at least in the Detroit area. The same thing with the government. I've been very lucky. You know, I've probably made mistakes in trials and stuff like that, like everyone did. I suppose my greatest mistake was maybe not buying Amazon at $4 a share. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's I can't think of a professional mistake that's really caused me to shift gears. I can think of a lot of opportunities that just popped up one morning when I went to the office that turned out to be remarkable. Gotcha. You ready for the final four questions? Sure. Final four. You've had a long, prestigious career, both as a federal prosecutor, as a private litigator, as well as a DOJ tax assistant attorney general. What is your biggest motivation now? I just like to keep busy. I'm not a golfer. I don't have a lot of hobbies. 
my motivation, I guess, is to stay healthy and keep busy. And if I can be of assistance to clients that have issues, I'd be happy to be of assistance to them. I don't think I would go back to the DOJ. I don't know what I'd go back to do. But my motivation now is just to keep busy and provide some legal assistance to those who think I can help them. I don't know what your experience was as being head of the DOJ tax division, but I will say this much. Kudos to the tax division criminal side. Whenever I dealt with any of those attorneys, they were spot on top notch. Never had any issues. Thoroughly enjoyed them. Really was great working with those guys. There's no way in the world I could get hired by the tax division today to be a trial lawyer. I mean, I say that with a tongue in cheek, but the resumes of the people I see that apply to the tax division and the Department of Justice as a whole are just remarkable resumes. We've had people in the tax division during my tenure that they're there for a couple of years. They're from the finest law schools. They graduate with honors. They're on law review. They do moot court. And then... Um, I've had a couple of my lawyers become tax court judges. One went from the tax division to clerk for a Supreme Court justice and is now a federal district judge. These are highly remarkable people, and they're a pleasure to work with because they're extremely smart, extremely dedicated, and they make the hierarchy look good. And they really like what they're doing. I dealt with probably approximately, I would say at least 10 of them, and every single one of them was just fantastic. The quality of the people in the tax division is remarkable. They're highly dedicated, extraordinarily smart. They like what they do, but they're fair, honest, and ethical. And I think those are the three most important characteristics. I would agree 100%. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? The books I read the most generally in the area of military history and strategy I don't know if it's changed, and I guess I have, I've always had an interest in it, which is one reason I, I was commissioned in the service after I graduated undergrad. But I've always looked at a prosecution like, uh, like you would probably want to stage a battle, how to organize a massive amount of information and to organize it in a cogent, effective way to get to a proper result. I don't want to say that every time I think of either defending a case or prosecuting a case, uh, I think of it as, as a battle. But the strategies and the tactics of organizing massive amounts of information and, and in some instances, people, when you talk about organizing and managing clients, their employees and witnesses, I wouldn't call myself a student of military history, but a hobbyist. I don't know if that's life changing or not, but it's been helpful. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100. If it's good enough for Richard Zuckerman, it's good enough for the world. What have you enjoyed or made your job easier, less than $100? Blueberry pie. <laughs> is it homemade or is it something you bought? No, I like I like blueberry pie out of uh, grocery stores. <laughs> <laughs> also, seven-layer cake, but that's beside the point. Oh, <laughs> uh, blueberry pie and seven layer cake is what gets to what gets to your heart. Yeah, I got it. Right, right. I got it. You want to win a case? It doesn't take much. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you had to do something else, if you get fired today, what would you be doing? You could no longer be a lawyer. If things were similar today to what they were decades ago, I, I might have considered something like. Wall Street, generically, something in the venture capital area. 
when I graduated undergrad, that didn't exist. Investment banking was a lot different uh, in 1967 than it is today. But if I had to start all, if I had to start all over, and I was young enough to start all over, I would. And I didn't go into the practice of law. I might, I might look at that and see if that was some. It interests me. I'd have to look and see if I could be successful at it. Well, Mr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for your time on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for your service in the country and for all that you did for at DOJ Tax Division. I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Okay, you're welcome.